is what I'm saying. Uh, Y'all are probably going to make fun of me for this, but if you don't believe me that we make messes of our relationships pretty naturally, uh, I would encourage you, and I say this with fear and trepidation, I'd encourage you to watch an episode of ABC's The Bachelor uh, or The Bachelor in Paradise franchise. Uh, I I confess I am kind of an avid uh, fan of the show, and uh, it will not take you very long to realize that the fundamental concept of this show, The Bachelor, is that everyone on there is coming on, in theory, to try to make a romantic connection with someone and live, you know, for all intents and purposes, happily ever after, right? And yet, as it plays out on the show, basically everyone is awful to each other all the time. Uh, There's a ton of jealousy and backbiting and gossip and basically every single version of villainy you can imagine. In fact... Uh, in last night's episode, spoilers, guys, if you haven't watched it, I'm about to give it away. Uh, Brendan, who is like one of America's sweethearts, he uh, was on his previous season of The Bachelor. He has literally been lying to this girl for like three weeks and telling her how amazing she is. And he's even kissed her, pretending that they're in a relationship. And then like this week, last night, it's revealed that like, oh, yeah, by the way, I've actually just been using you all this time to wait until the girl that I really liked got here. And we've actually been on a bunch of dates before now, and we agreed that we're just going to ditch you. And so he basically like played her on national television, except now everybody hates him. And uh, he's getting, I'm sure, just roasted online in his inbox. Now, as I talk about that, you might say, like, Nick, that's trash television where only the trash people live, right? And so that, and like, you know, g- garbage people are going to do garbage things on national television. And what I would say is maybe that's a little bit of uh, misplaced pride. Uh, have you ever felt jealous? Have you ever been driven to do something that you didn't think was part of, like, your character? We hear it all the time from celebrities. That's not who I really am when they apologize. Like, that's not who I really want to be. Right? If we're honest, a lot of times in relationships, we're really not the kind of people we want to be. What I'm saying is that there is a strain on our efforts to be in community, to be spiritually and emotionally naked and unashamed. And tonight's passage, Genesis 3, is a story about how that strain began through something called sin. Now, I'm also going to say, because it's our first meeting together, uh, I know that when I say sin, when we talk about the Christian doctrine of sin, Uh, It's been used by many religious people over time to villainize and to hate and even to exclude and marginalize groups of people that they think have sin that are worse than them or uh, have some sort of, uh, you know, shortcoming that they can, they can, you know, just scapegoat and say they're the real problem with this world. And I would just say uh, briefly that sin is not one group's problem. In fact, what we're going to be introduced to tonight is that sin is a universal human issue. And it lies at the heart of what is wrong with us and why it's such a struggle to be vulnerable and safe in relationship. So if you'll allow me, right, for a moment, maybe we can disabuse one another of the idea of this weaponized version of sin that is used to hurt and exclude and replace it with the biblical vision that is introducing us to a God who wants to include and persuade. So that'll be our focus tonight. As we consider what is wrong with our relationships, uh, really we're going to look at what sin is and how it works in us. Right? That's our main two points tonight. If you're a note taker, this is where we're just like camping out tonight. We're looking at what sin is and how it works in us. 
Uh, we'll maybe spend a little bit of time thinking about how we are to respond to sin as well. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we've already read the passage. Um, and uh, as I uh, try to unpack it, um, Lord, I hope I don't, I, and I pray that I don't say anything novel. Um, no new ideas here. Uh, I pray that I would stand in a line of uh, 2,000 years of your church bearing witness to your grace and your goodness uh, to this world. Um, not condemning it, but instead inviting renewal and hope into our relationships. Lord, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. So in thinking of how we might first define sin, the first thing we should note about God and his commands is two things that his commands are not, right? I want to point out two things that God's commands are not before we think about what sin is, what transgressing it is. First, right, the first thing we could say about God's commands, especially from this passage, is that they are not burdensome, right? Look at me at verse 9 of chapter 2. I think we're going to pull that up. Uh, Hopefully it's not too different. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says that God's uh, laws, his command, is not burdensome. When God gives Adam, right, the command in 2.16 to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Right? We're supposed to realize that that's not a hard task. Look at verse 9. It says, uh, oh, we're back. Never mind. Uh, verse 9 says that uh, the trees are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Right? Uh, that's actually the exact same description that Eve will give of the fruit in her eyes in 3.6 just before she eats it. She'll say, seeing that it was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Uh, in other words, what the author is trying to get us to connect is that the tree is not any other is not different inherently than any other tree, right? It's not like God made some tree that was like amazing and had I don't know apples growing from it, and then the, like and he said don't eat that tree, and then the other ones all grew. What's like a what's a fruit that nobody eats? What are those like a papaya or whatever? Not nobody. Some people eat papaya, but. Um, it's not like he had a tree that like only grew fruit that nobody would want. Okay. Like bananas that always turn brown. You never eat all of them. And you say you're going to make banana bread with them, but you never do. Um, right. Sorry. Uh, bananas ground vines anyways, uh, not trees. But the point there being right, that, uh, God doesn't make it and doesn't set them up for failure, right? That it's not a burdensome rule that God makes. It's actually quite easy to do. All the trees are the same. They're all delight to the eyes and good for food. And yet God says, don't eat from this one. It should be a no-brainer. It should be very easy to do what God has asked of them. And that brings us to our second thing we should understand about God's commands, what they're not. Uh, God wants us to obey because who he is. This command isn't necessarily, right? It's not um, like built around uh, like what's good for Adam. Not inherently good for Adam. The, like I just said, the trees are basically the same, right? Uh, God, in this first command, he just picks a tree, a particular tree. He says, don't eat of it. And it seems rather arbitrary. If it really is the same in substance as all the other trees, why pick it? There's no rationale given for why the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge of good, uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And uh, we just said that it doesn't appear any different from the other trees, so God did not make this command uh, like with an incentive for Adam. 
right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, like, the first command could have been, like, don't lie or cheat or steal, right? Something from the Ten Commandments, maybe. But those all have their own intrinsic rewards, don't they? Like, if you, uh, uh, you might not want to cheat on a test, right? Because for two reasons. One, because you don't want to get caught, right? If you get caught, you could end up, you know, getting expelled, you get an F in the class, you have to retake it. Like there are repercussions to your actions. And so you might want to do things that help you along in life. There's an incentive for you to do the right thing. The other reason you might not cheat on a test is because uh, you want to be considered trustworthy, right? You want to be the kind of person that uh, people don't have to wonder if you'll cheat or you'll lie or you'll steal, you, you want to be a good moral person. In other words, fear and pride can be great motivators for human beings, right? Motivators to get us to do good things. But to obey one of those commands, like don't lie, cheat, or steal, right? That would simply have revealed what Adam cares about is that he cares about himself, right? God sets up this system with a tree that looks the same as all the other trees because and says not to eat of this one and you won't earn anything by not eating it, right? Like he couldn't earn, he couldn't, life couldn't get any better for Adam. It was already as good as it was going to get, right? He's not going to earn anything by doing what God has asked. And yet uh, God sets up this scenario where the whole reason for him to obey can't be for himself. It's literally just because God has said so. Right? It's not, there's nothing inherent in the tree. There's nothing inherent in the whole design of this covenant. No, this agreement. Nothing inherent that makes it look like Adam should eat the tree. In other words, the obedience that God requires is for God's sake. It's based on who he is, what his character is like, his trustworthiness. There's nothing in it for Adam. Instead, the foundation for the command, it's built on trust right, on God's character. This is what sin is then, right? If we're going to define sin based on this scenario, right, where uh, God gives a tree that looks like all the other ones and no incentive to have eaten it or not eaten it, everything, uh, there's no reason uh, primarily other than I just need you to trust me, right? We could say it like this. Sin at its heart is a throwing off of God's authority that attacks his character, Right? It's a throwing off of his authority that attacks his character. Because if, right, if uh, part of the baked-in nature of this, uh, of this agreement, of this covenant, is that it's based on God's character to violate it, is to say, God, I don't believe that you're that good. I know you've set this up so that everything looks the same. It's not even that hard for me to obey you. And yet at the same time, uh, to break it is to say, I just don't trust you. I just don't trust you. This is what lies at the heart of all our brokenness. It's an attempt to usurp God's wisdom with our own. And this is the same God we're talking about. uh, We were talking about last week, right? Who created the whole world good, gave us rich relationships, walked with Adam in the cool of the evening face to face. Now, Adam didn't even know this, right? Uh, And we'll talk about it more momentarily But this God is the same one that after Adam is going to disobey, right? After Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, fast forward many, many, many years later, right? He will actually come and take on flesh. He'll come and be a part of our world, put himself on the hook for our sin, 
punish our sin, right? Be just and justifier, and then uh, give us the righteousness that he's earned. That's how, that's who this God is. He loves us, right? Everything about his character is on display that he is someone we can trust. Uh, and, and because of this, the rules aren't burdensome and it's, and it's not foolhardy to obey God's law. There's, there's nothing untrustworthy about him. Essentially, uh, and I'm all full disclosure, I'm borrowing this illustration from uh, a pastor friend of mine, John Talley at Christ Church, Milwaukee. Uh, essentially, like this is the, the scenario that uh, gets set up here. Um, I don't know if you know much about basketball, but basketball has uh, out of bounds lines. Now, if I started playing basketball with you and I said, you know what? I think actually I would be much better at basketball if there was no out of bounds. Sometimes I dribble it out of bounds or I shoot and it goes out of bounds. And I think actually we should just get rid of out of bounds because that'll make me better at the game. And then actually, you know what, while we're at it, because sometimes it goes out of bounds, I'm also not so good at just dribbling. I don't want it to go super far away. So I'm just going to carry it if that's okay. Uh, I'm just going to carry the basketball and then I'll kind of like, you know, just run up and shoot it under the basket. Maybe I'll dunk it. Um, if I could dunk it, I can't dunk it. Um, Right. If I if I wanted to play basketball with you like that, you would be like, no, I'm not playing. It's like I think that's football, uh, what you're describing, uh, rugby of some sort. Right. You wouldn't want to play a game like that because it would be chaos. Right. The same is true for God's laws. He makes them for our good. Right. They actually enable us to flourish. Uh, if everyone just goes about whatever they want, right? If we just do whatever seems right to us, it's like playing basketball by picking it up and just running it down to the other hoop, right? It's not that you can't. It's not that it won't get you to where you want to go, but how will you have done it? And at what cost, right? Uh, sin tells us that that will be good for us, that we could just make up our own rules, do what's right for us, what we want to do. Uh, so if sin is like trying to play basketball without rules, why do we eat sin then, right? If it's so obvious what's good for us, right? If God is so good and he's so trustworthy, you just said like it doesn't even, like on some level, if you, if you read this passage, like I, I'm sure you kind of noticed it as you read it, it, it kind of doesn't make any sense, right? Adam and Eve are naked uh, and uh, unashamed, everything's good, they've got limited food and resources, no one's dying. And then they're like, you know what would be great is if we completely rebelled against everything that's happening that's good in our lives. doesn't make any sense, right? Why do we do it then? Why, why would anyone sin? Why would they sin? Well, let's consider how sin works in us for a moment. Uh, look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, if we can find it. I don't know if, we're, if we can, but... If we can, 3, 1 through 5, uh, starts with, now the serpent was more crafty than the other beast, right? Uh, the first temptation Eve experiences is this. She mistrusts God's word, right? How does, how does sin work? First, it's going to chip away at what God says. Hear the posture that's adopted in the question of the serpent in verse, uh, verse 1. He says this, did God actually say, or here it's, uh, did God really say did he really say that? Uh, it, it, that? Surely, surely God would not have said such a thing as don't eat of the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And the second, right, the second temptation Eve experiences, uh, if you look at verse five, uh, it's a mistrust of God's goodness, 
right? Uh, it's a mistrust of God's goodness. If you remember, I said, what are the keys to obedience, right? One of them is that you actually fundamentally trust God, right? One of them is that, uh, you know, it's not hard to obey God's law. It's actually good and easy for you to do. Uh, if you really think about it, it should come naturally. It's good for you. The other thing is that God himself is a good law giver. You can trust his character. And the, the problem is that the serpent goes to work on, on both these issues, right? Did God really say, would he have made a law like that? That doesn't seem right. You know, that, that seems hard actually because he wouldn't punish you for that, right? He slowly starts to chip away at the, at the reality of the situation, which is that God is good. Right? According to verse 5, um, uh, the serpent says that God is lying and he doesn't want you to be like him. Right? The truth is, when you, when you take this mistrust of God's word and a mistrust of his character, right, they combine into kind of a single uh, narrative that Eve starts to believe. And it's this, God's holding out on you. God is holding out on you. That's, that's where all sin starts on some level is, I think... I think that God is holding out on me, that there's something better, that there's something I want, and he says I shouldn't have it. And this scenario, right, it's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the only reason I can think of that he would have me not have this is because he doesn't want me to have a good thing. He doesn't want me to have a good thing because he himself is not good. Don't we feel like this sometimes? Like, do you feel like this sometimes? Uh, like, do you want to be self-reliant in the same way? Uh, we can't be sure that God is good, right? We kind of wonder if he's really got our best interests in mind. And then we look at ourselves and we think, well, I certainly can trust me. I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, A Brother Where Art Thou? Um, if you've seen A Brother Where Art Thou, there's this one scene where the these three guys are like fighting amongst themselves and... Uh, it comes to like a head and the guy goes, look, I'm the leader of this outfit. And they go, who made you leader? And they say, well, you know what? Let's vote. I'm voting for yours truly as the leader. And the next guy goes, well, I'm voting for yours truly too, right? They, they all want to trust themselves. Last guy's eat chicken. So he just says, well, I'm with you fellers, but that's not a here nor there, right? The point being, we all want to vote for ourselves. Like who, who's going to be our authority? I can be my authority. I can trust me. The problem is, there is no good apart from God, right? Eve and Adam find this out the hard way as they uh, rebel against him and death enters the world. But uh, the truth is like they should have known it already. He's baked his goodness into all of creation, right? You, you can see it in a, good, in a sunset, right? Or a sunrise over Lake Michigan. You can see it uh, in a breeze when it's, you know, 75 degrees. Like we, we get uh, little pieces of what they got in full, that God is glorious and, and desires to bless his people. And like I said before, he's put skin in the game. We already know that too. But uh, yet we're still pulled and we still wonder, yeah, I know all those things, but like this thing seems so good. I just don't know if I can trust God. Um, this always like this scenario, this uh, difficulty we find ourselves in where we, simultaneously know that God is good. He has good commands and all these things, and yet also feel deep in ourselves a, a, a skepticism about him. Uh, it always reminds me of this scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I don't know if you've read those books, but there's one called The Silver Chair, 
And a little girl in it named Jill ends up getting lost at one point. And she's actually getting very thirsty and dehydrated. And she's lost and she uh, can't, can't find her partner that she had come there with. And she starts to panic. And then suddenly she hears like a babbling brook, a stream. And she starts running straight towards the stream. And where she can hear the sounds getting louder and louder. And she comes out to a clearing and all the trees are gone. And she sees a huge lion standing there right between her and the stream. And this is what she says. Uh, I am dying of thirst, uh, says Jill. The lion says, then drink. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Uh, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step neither, another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. The truth is, in this passage, we see Eve went looking for another stream. She and, and Adam followed in the same suit. In verses 6 through 7, we see that uh, she, they do, in fact, die looking for another stream. Right? That uh, as they look to go their own way, as we ourselves look to go our own way, sometimes we think, maybe, maybe another way is best. I know that God has told me in his word what he wants from me. I know that it, I, Nick, you've been laboring on this, like his law is good, yada, yada, but like, you don't understand, man, I really want to date this person. I'm not, I know that I shouldn't, or I, I, I really want to go to this party. Uh, no, I shouldn't. I, I really want to, uh, I don't know, whatever behavior you exhibit. Like I, I, I know that I, I probably should give up, but it feels so good. Um, uh, you, you don't understand, Nick. Uh, if you had the friend that I have, you would drop them dead too. You would try to avoid them at all costs. I know God wants me to love them, but I don't want to, right? The reality is that we think we'll find another stream. And the truth is that God is the source of life, right? That he loves us, right? Uh, how do we break free from that then, right? How do we believe that, right? Because I can tell you all I want, right? I can tell you guys all, all I want to do is tell you that like, oh, God is good. And then you'll leave here and you'll never sin again, right? No, that's not how it works. Uh, what do we do? How do we break free from sin? How do we trust the lion? Well, first, we got to recognize our sinfulness. We got to recognize our sinfulness. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 9. Last point here. Adam and Eve, after rebelling, have hidden from God, and God asks, Where are you? In, in, in verse 9, they've uh, reaped the uh, rewards of the promise of the serpent. The serpent said, uh, that they would know good and evil if they ate of the tree, and they do now. 
they know, they possess that knowledge, but they have it in the same way that you and I have knowledge of like a rare type of cancer once we've been diagnosed with it, right? Or maybe uh, you might uh, come to know uh, what our prison system is like because you have a family member that's incarcerated, right? Uh, This is not the kind of knowledge you want. You come to know it, but they've come to know it uh, because they've experienced the good and the evil in themselves. And God comes with them with this, comes to them with this question, not because he doesn't know the answer, right? God's not like, where'd you go? <laughs> I, I know I'm an omnicompetent being that knows everything, but I somehow can't find you, right? Like, that's not really the, the nature here. He asks this question, where are you for them? For them to think through it. Where are you? Right, as they're sitting there hiding amongst the trees, uh, trying their best to sew fig leaves together to clothe themselves, God asks them, where are you? Where are you? Take inventory of where your rebellion has gotten you. Come to terms with the sin that you have committed and your poor attempts at hiding it, sewing your fig leaves together and thinking like a fool that an all-knowing creator does not know where you are or he won't find you. It takes a while for them, even though God asks them this question, where are you? It takes them for a while to be truly exposed and vulnerable, though. Look at me at verses uh, 12 through 13 of chapter 3. Even once they're out from hiding, that's when the finger pointing starts, right? Uh, This is what I mean when I say uh, that sin is at the root of what is wrong with all our relationships. Because sin has entered the world, so also has strife entered the world between one another. Here, it's the finger pointing, the blame game. And that's a version of still hiding their sin, right? Uh, their problems become everyone's fault but their own. Uh, you know, God asks what happened, and he says, you know, you gave me this woman. You put this woman here, and uh, she made me eat it, and then she immediately blames the serpent, and they just keep passing the buck. It's not that the sin of others, right? When we talk about, like, owning our own sin, it's not that the sin of others doesn't affect us, right? It's not that... Uh, you're not truly affected or, or you, let's say um, you're in a group project, right? And one of your group members completely is just abdicating their responsibility in the group project. And you decide uh, to spend four or five hours on TikTok procrastinating because it seems so overwhelming for you to engage with the project, right? I'm not saying that your, your teammate didn't do anything wrong. But what I'm saying is, was that four hours on TikTok good for you? Right? Was, that a, was that a healthy choice for your time? Did you honor your neighbors who are going to have to sit through that presentation uh, when you uh, procrastinated like that? Right? Uh, the, the question is, are you going to keep hiding by pointing the finger at everyone else? Or will you come clean? Uh, in John 5, Jesus meets a finger pointer. Uh, similar story. He walks up to a guy who's been lame for 32 years has not walked for, sorry, 38 years. And he walks up, and can you believe the, uh, what this guy, what Jesus asked this guy? He asks, do you want to be healed? A man who has not walked in 38 years, Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? It's the same question, right? Different, different story, different scenario, but it's the same question of where are you, right? Why haven't you already been healed? He's near a pool that if he just rolls in when the raves are coming, when the waves are coming, he can be healed and he can walk. Why hasn't he dived in? 
right? What's keeping him? And he starts talking about other people, you know, get in the pool before me. And they, you know, other people won't help me get in the pool. He has everybody to blame but himself. And Jesus wants him to think through, why are you not healed? Do you want to be? Where are you? Right? It's, it's these questions that help us think through, maybe we should come clean. Who told you you were naked? Uh, and God inviting us to confess our sin, to own the places where we mess up, is actually why each party gets their own punishment. Uh, I wish I had more time to examine those, but it's just worth noting that there's actually a dignity in God punishing both Adam and Eve and the serpent. Because what it says is that God made humans with agency, that you have agency, that you have the ability to know what is right and wrong and to make choices freely. And the truth is that Adam and Eve do exercise their freedom. They are free. They have complete and utter free will to do whatever they want, and they do the opposite of what God has asked. Right? Our choices matter, and we have to own them uh, when they are wrong and confess them if we want to be restored in relationship. So how do we do that? Uh, Well, in closing, uh, look with me at 315. Chapter 3, verse 15. Um, What does it mean for us to be restored in relationship? I just told you that uh, sin is striking off God's authority and it's it's, uh, saying that his character isn't good. It doesn't make any sense. And yet we do it by always distrusting him always looking for another stream. Uh, If we will own the fact that we do that and we come to him, there's a hope for a different way. How do we have that hope? Well, it's here and it's, you know, very early stages. Uh, I said that we talk about this, but in 315, uh, God makes a promise that uh, the offspring of Eve, his heel, her offspring, his heel will crush the head of the serpent right? That uh, the serpent will bruise his heel. The reason that God promises that is because several thousand years later, that's exactly what God would do. Not because humanity progressed and we triumphed over sin, but because God became man, took on flesh, became uh, a man in Jesus and walked around living a good life, loving people, trusting God's laws and living the perfect life that neither you nor I could ever live. And because of that, God has, in fact, crushed the serpent's head. He has triumphed over sin. He's taken it on himself, died to sin on the cross, and then gives us Jesus' righteousness. Do you believe that that's the case for you? That just like Adam and Eve get clothed with animal skins as God sacrifices uh, some animal in the garden, do you believe that God also has sacrificed himself to clothe you with his righteousness? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Uh, That's the good news for our relationships, uh, not just with God, but with one another. Uh, This is what frees us from finger pointing, blame shifting, and instead to be honest and vulnerable with God and one another. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I do pray as we think through